Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you again for this Sabbath day. And now, Lord, I ask that, that it's your words that everyone hears and takes away your message, not mine. Lord, we thank you again for all the things that you do for us, the ways that you work in our lives. Amen. He was a very wealthy man. He was a Chicago lawyer. He had a thriving legal practice. He had a beautiful wife, four daughters, and an infant son. He had prominent friends, some of which included Dwight Moody and Ira Sankey. One day, though, in 1869, he received a call while he was at work, a call being someone probably came and got him, and they said, you need to go home immediately. The doctor is there. Your son isn't doing well. So when he got home, he found out from the doctor that his son had contracted scarlet fever, and the doctor explained to him that his son wouldn't make it. He was devastated, and sure enough, this young boy passed away. With grief pressing in on every side, he threw himself further into his work. And eventually, he, he had many real estate ventures, and he had his law firm, so it was easy to bury himself in this work. One night, though, exactly two years, or about two years since the passing of his small son, on October 8, 1871, he was awakened from bed to realize that something was wrong. There was a fire ripping through Chicago, and it was later what we know today as the Great Chicago Fire. Well, as a result of this, it consumed building after building after building, and he watched as most of his real estate ventures went up in smoke. He was devastated. Two more years passed. It was 1873. And he learned that his friends, Ira Sankey and Dwight Moody, were going to be holding evangelistic campaign over in London. And he said to his wife, you know what, we need a vacation. It's time to get away. It's time to, to you know, just take the girls and relax a little. And we can help them out in their campaign. And so they began to make the arrangements. They would have to take a ship across the ocean. And I'm sure excitement began to bubble in the household as the day approached for the ship to leave. I can only imagine the excitement the girls felt as they arrived on the port and they watched as the sailors loaded the ship and the seagulls would have screamed overhead. They were heading to England soon. However, he was called away on business at the last minute. He couldn't, he couldn't go with his family. He had to stay put in Chicago because things just weren't going right. So he said to his wife and his daughters, he said, you guys go on ahead. There's no point in your vacation being ruined. I'll join you when I can. And so 11-year-old Anna, known as Annie, 9-year-old Margaret Lee, known as Maggie, 5-year-old Elizabeth, known as Betsy, and 2-year-old Tanata boarded the ship with their mother. And I can only imagine them running around the ship excited as they went on their 19th century cruise. Well, they were out at sea for about a week. It was the night of November 22, 1873, when their ship, known as the Ville de Havre, continued sailing steadily along in the water. However, unbeknownst to Captain Merino Cermonte, danger was very near. See, another ship, known as the Loch Urn, was an iron clipper. And the captain of this ship, the Loch Urn, realized 
that the Ville de Havre was, a, was coming towards them. And so he began to sound the warning bell, and the ship didn't move. So at the last second, he gave orders, let's change course, we don't want to collide with these guys. So they began to try to steer a ship, but of course, steering a ship isn't something that you just do quickly, it takes time. And suffice to say, at 2 a.m. on November 22, 1873, the Ville de Havre, with its 313 passengers and crew on board, collided with the Loch Ern. And some of you at this point probably already know what this story is about and who it's about. The passengers, all asleep at this point, were jostled awake by the, by the force of the crash. And they ran on deck where the captain, Mario Cervante, met them and said, there's no need, no need to panic, everyone stay calm. Well, the ship was nearly split in half. And so, of course, a mad scramble ensued for life, lifeboats. However, the lifeboats had recently been painted, and many of them were stuck to the deck. So, of course, the whole idea of women and children first was thrown out the, the door, and there was just a mad dash to try to save yourself at this point. And then to make things even more chaotic, the main mast broke and came crashing down, smashing two more lifeboats with it. The captain of the Loch Ern, his, his boat was badly damaged but was still, still floating, and he tried desperately to save as many as he could from the icy waters. He was able to pull 61 passengers and 26 of the crew aboard his badly battered ship. The Ville du Havre sank in 12 minutes, and with it, 226 passengers went down into the water. Mrs. Spafford arrived, was one of those saved on the Loch Ern. And when she arrived in London, she had to send a message back to her husband. And as she thought about what to send, because it cost money per word, she sent a brief message, and it read simply, Saved alone. Where was the peace and the calm that life can sometimes bring? To Horatio G. Spafford, his life looked more like a chaotic storm. Water. The idea of water, for those of you who maybe like water or for those of you who are afraid of water, you know that when you're out on a boat and you look over the edge of the boat, it can sometimes be a daunting as you look and you, you can't really see bottom. You're not really sure what's under there. And as you stand there and you look, it can be a peaceful experience, but it can also be kind of nerve-wracking. And for Jesus and his disciples, it had been a long day. He had been teaching the people parables most of the day and healing others. And finally, he says to the disciples, he says, let's put the boat out into the lake. And I want you to turn with me to Luke 8, verses 22 through 23. Luke 8. Luke 8, verses 22 and 23. It says, one day he, being Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they put out. And while they were sailing, he fell asleep. And a windstorm swept down on the lake, and the boat was filling with water, and they were in danger. I don't know, how many of you have ever been out on a boat, big or small, and you got trapped out in some sort of a storm? A few hands. I was talking to one lady once, and she told me that she was on a cruise ship when they went through a hurricane. 
And she said the waves were 13 stories tall. And the ship was just up and down, up and down. And I asked her, I said, what did you do? And she said, the only thing I could do. I went back to my cabin, I puked, and I prayed. <laughs> like, oh, can't imagine. When I was 13, we didn't have an experience that bad, thankfully. But my family, we took a trip down to Ocracoke Island, just off the, uh, the coast of North Carolina, the Outer Banks. And to get there, one of the ways to get there is to go across a ferry ride, and it's roughly two to two and a half hours. And so we pulled up to the dock at just at closing time. The last ferry across had gone. So we spent the night, we camped. The next morning when we woke up, the storm clouds were rolling in. It wasn't looking very nice. And so we checked, and they said, yeah, we're still going across. Everything's good. And the waves were starting to get quite high, but they didn't seem worried. And so we set out on our journey into small portion of the Atlantic. And I remember my mom refused to get out of the truck. She just sat there. She was, you know, quite panic-stricken as the waves got worse and the ferry just started to rock back and forth. And I remember watching an RV just kind of come and this guy was trying to walk through and he almost got pinned between the RV and the car beside him. It was crazy. So my dad took us kids around for a walk around the boat and we watched as the waves shot up and over and it wasn't an experience I wished to relive. So I can imagine to a small degree the fear that these poor men must have experienced as they were in this fishing boat, being tossed back and forth by the waves. And we have to remember that these were experienced fishermen. Some of them were experienced fishermen. And so for them to be afraid of this storm means that the storm was probably pretty good at this point. And it's funny because being out on the water can be such a relaxing experience. Or if you're sitting in your cottage and you're looking out over a lake, it can be a very relaxing experience. But as the disciples are being tossed back and forth by this boat, I can only imagine that they wished for calm and peace that can sometimes be. What about us today? What about us? As we're riding along in this boat called life, are we wishing that things would calm down just a little sometimes? I mean, when you flip on the news at night and you watch another suicide bomber blow himself up somewhere, taking other people with him, or you watch protesters marching, whether for good reasons or bad reasons, when you hear of another shooting, another war being talked of, and, I mean, the list goes on and on. I'm not going to get into those details. But sometimes it can seem like life is a little crazy right now. And then, I mean, if you shut off the news and you think about your own life, there can be days where it seems absolutely chaotic, whether it's financial problems or whether it's school or whether it's marital problems or relationship, whatever. Life can sometimes seem absolutely chaotic. My point is merely this. We live in a world screaming for peace in the midst of a storm that is threatening to sink this boat. We have injustices being committed on all ends. We live in a world that seems to have gone crazy, spiraling out of control. And questions are being asked. Who's going to make it through this collision? What's going to happen? Is peace possible at this point? Where is the calm? What can be done before this ship sinks into the, the dark waters of Earth's history? Back on July 16th, a number of, of Christians from a number of different groups got together in Washington, D.C. 
and they came from all religions. It was Pentecostal, Anglicans, Catholics, United, etc., etc., Evangelicals. And you had uh, preachers like Billy Graham, and the Pope did a little address as well, but it was over a live feed. And you had musicians like Carrie Job, Matthew West, um, Casting Crowns, etc. And they all got together in hopes of unity, in hopes of peace, in hopes that there could be maybe a reset if they all came together. The great Ayman has said religions need to work together to obtain peace. The UN promotes trying to achieve peace. There's a hashtag peace that you can put after certain things that you say. People are desperate for it. And can you blame them? Anyone caught out in a storm longs for peace and calm. But see, there's a problem with peace when it comes to religions coming together and trying to obtain it that way. And the problem lies in the definition of what peace is. Peace occurs between a heterogeneous social groups and is characterized by a lack of conflict and freedom from fear of violence. And that sounds pretty good. But commonly understood is the absence of hostility. Peace often involves compromise. And I mean, sometimes compromise is a good thing. I know when my kids are fighting, sometimes there, there needs to be some compromise in order to attain peace in the household yet again. So what is the problem with compromising our beliefs? I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. Verse 15. It says, Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. In other words, it's important to know what you believe and why you believe it and be able to defend it. Paul echoes the same sentiment in Romans 14, verse 5, when he says, Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Why do you believe what you believe in? See, when it comes to following Christ, compromise is not a possibility. We have a hope and a belief in this book, and even for the sake of peace, we cannot and must not compromise what is written in here and believed by us. See, the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3. Turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3. In regards to Paul is writing about the end times. And he says, when they say, peace, peace, or there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. And again, in Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says that when we acknowledge him, he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And this is not some villainous act on God's part. Belief in the Bible, belief in God, automatically sets you on the opposite side sometimes. We know that, that Satan seeks to, he goes around to and fro. And we're on the opposite side when we choose God, opposite side of Satan. Now please understand, though, this does not negate the fact that we have a work to do as Christians in this world to reach out. And our Sabbath school lesson has been about that recently, over the last quarter reaching out, following Christ's methods to reach people, to help people, to meet them where they're at.
But when it comes to achieving or looking for peace on this earth, sadly, it's impossible. But our story is not done yet. See, as the disciples are being tossed back and forth in this boat and death is becoming more of a reality, they remember something. They remember that somebody else is in the boat with them. Turn again to Luke 8, verse 24. Luke 8, verse 24. See, by themselves, they were incapable of making any difference. They were powerless to control the storm. They were powerless to control the situation at hand. So the first half of Luke 8, 24 says, They went to him, being Jesus, and they woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we are perishing. We're dying here. Help us. Jesus, we're dying here. Help us. We can't keep this boat afloat anymore. We need you. Jesus was with them the entire time. He'd never left. Why didn't they wake him up at the beginning? Why didn't they wake him up when the the storm first came upon them? Perhaps it was pride. And I think each and every one of us knows that sometimes we like to see how far we can go, how far we can do something before we finally say, okay, I need help. And maybe, maybe that's why the disciples didn't do it right away. Maybe we can do this on our own. Let's let Jesus sleep. And then suddenly they realize we're, we're out of control. We need Christ at this point. And even in our storms, Christ is with us. Even though things look dismal and bleak, and the world seems to have gone crazy, Christ is with his church, his people. Second part of Luke 8.24. Luke 8:24 And he woke up and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves they ceased and there was calm There's an important message in the second part of this verse Peace is only possible through Jesus Yes on earth believing in God can cause the complete opposite of peace in our lives Because we're strangers here. This isn't our home. We're plunked here in the midst of a world that God wanted to be full of peace and perfection, but that is sadly marred by sin and destruction. And we're told to do our part here. We're told to to reach out and help people. We're told to be God's hands and feet here on this earth. And that's the part we play. But sadly, peace will never reign here because although Christ is the author of peace, this world is held captive by the prince of confusion and utter chaos. But we have hope. Turn with me to John 14, verses 1 through 3. John 14. Verses 1 through 3. And it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be, and where I go you will go. We have such a wonderful hope because we are a church. It's embedded in our name, Adventist. We are a church that believes that Jesus is coming again soon. And that one day peace will reign again forevermore. 
And while the world cries out for peace down here, we know that things sadly are going to get crazier because the Bible has told us it would. We know that this storm will continue brewing, but we know that Jesus is right there with us. He is the calm in this storm, and one day he will say, Peace be still, as he proclaims that it is finished here on earth. It's almost time to go home. Are we ready? Are we excited about it? (laughs) I want to go to one more verse, Luke 21. Luke 21. Verses 25 through 28. And again, Jesus is talking here. And he says, There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on the earth distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And verse 28 is key. Now, when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. And it's funny because when you're in the middle of a storm, when things are crazy, if you were on a boat, the last thing on earth you would think of doing is standing up and looking up. And here Jesus is saying, when things are starting to get crazy, now is the time to get up. Look up. Because your redemption draws nigh. Well, going back to our original story, Horatio G. Spafford, he did set sail to join his wife. And he told the captain as they left, he said, listen, when we go over the spot where the collision had happened, please come get me. And so as the ship began to sail and they got near the spot, the captain came downstairs and knocked on his door and said, okay, we're... We're roughly near the same spot. So he went up, and it, it says that he, he stood on the, at the railing, and he looked over at just the peacefulness of what, what once was just pure chaos that night. He went back to his room, and he began to write a well-known hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And the words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's another verse that we don't have in our hymnal, but it's beautiful. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. And of course, our closing hymn will be hymn number 530.